Hey, so a couple things. Uh, so we have this week and next week in our series on Revelation. And then I think what we're going to do the week after, before we start Joshua, we're going to do a week for the next two weeks. You can email questions to me at joe at gracelifesrq.com. And we'll have me and one other person up here. And we're just going to answer. We're going to read questions you guys submit and answer questions about the series. Anything that you might have or things you want clarified or things you think I got totally wrong. Never mind. Not going to do that part. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think we're going to do that for one week. It'll be kind of a, di- a different feel, a different way of kind of winding this series up. And I, I feel like we should do that because this series was pretty impactful on our, on our lives as a church and as individuals. Learning a lot about what God is doing in the world today and, and how it impacts us. And uh, also because we've been blessed. Because John says if you read the book of Revelation, you'll be blessed. So... Um, One other thing before I get started, last week was such a precious, special day in our church, wasn't it? I mean, I, I watched it again like three times this week, right? Like it was, it was, it was, it was so good. And, um, the problem now is I have to preach (laughs) the week after. So the expectations are kind of, but, um, this week's sermon, um, this is week 50, one more week after this, almost quite, we didn't quite make 52 weeks, but this is called the last prophecy. So for better or worse, the allure of this idea of prophecy has long captivated the hearts and minds of followers of Jesus, right? It's something we're all interested in. And since the first century, there have been, and I'm talking about since Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, since that day, since that moment, Many people have claimed to be prophets, carrying a fresh, new, divine message from our God. But what if I told you all of that is wrong? What if, hypothetically, that God has already delivered one final prophecy to all of humanity and he has really nothing else that he needs to say to us? How would you feel about that? What if this final prophecy, in fact, is intended by design to be divisive? What if it does two things? It promises grace to some, but also inescapable judgment to others. Would you struggle to accept that truth? Or if I convinced you that it was true, that God is done speaking, would you agree that if one final prophecy was given that this last prophecy would be pretty important. And if that is the nature of God's final prophecy, that it's the last one that it's an, and it's important, don't you think we probably need some courage and wisdom on knowing how to proclaim it with love and humility and boldness? I think this is part of the challenge that we face. Because sometimes we don't feel quite equipped. Or sometimes we're not even willing to proclaim what God has told us. We're willing to proclaim the promises, but we're not really often willing to proclaim the judgment without hesitation in its entirety. Well, the fact of the matter is, church, there is no more prophecy from God. There has been one last final prophecy. He's done speaking. Everything he needs to be revealed, everything he needs to reveal has been revealed. 
He has, in fact, given us that final last prophecy that promises grace for his people and judgment for the rest. You know what that prophecy is called? The gospel. With that in mind, let's read what Revelation chapter 22, verse 6 through 11 says. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. The filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. The history of this passage is important to understand. There is this phrase that he says at the very beginning. The God of the spirit of the prophets. I want to explain what that means because it means a lot. So John uses this phrase, God of the spirits of the prophets, and it is a bold, immediate signal to his Jewish first century Christian readers. They understood what John was doing. He is proclaiming that revelation carries all the attributes of every prophecy that ever came before it. And those critical attributes, and there are four of them, that every prophecy in Scripture has, four attributes. Urgency. Credibility, authority, and then a call to action and accountability. Every prophecy has those four things. The first thing I want you to see is they would understand the urgency of this last prophecy. So in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, every prophecy carried a sense of urgency, a calling for immediate action and response from those who heard it. A prophecy was the authority from that very moment that it was given until that prophecy would be replaced by a new one. Did you know that? So there was a prophecy given. It was the the law and the rule and the way God wanted his people to act. And then a new prophecy would come that would complete the old one and start a new one. And that would carry the authority until the next prophecy. Whatever the most recent prophecy was, that was the one God's people were required to proclaim and to obey. And the phrase, I am coming soon, declares that urgency, that sense of right now, of this prophecy that John is giving, of its authority to its readers, that this is what's going to happen right now until Jesus returns. I am coming soon. Until then, this is what you do. It signals the importance of readiness, anticipation, And calls for prompt obedience to its commands. It encourages those who hear it to remain faithful and obedient until God's plan of redemption is completed. Until then, this prophecy is the one that God intends for all his people. Because once Jesus returns, those who are obedient to this last prophecy, they will see it was so worth the struggle. So that's the first element. The next one is credibility. So prophets, as representatives of God's words, were held to very high standards of moral and spiritual accountability. 
John was affectionately known by this first century church as John the Elder. Do you know why? First of all, he was the last surviving apostle. He undoubtedly met the standard of credibility. He had been serving the church for six decades, faithfully, sacrificially. That further solidified his affectionate, reverent standing. He was also known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Maybe you've heard of that. He had a very special connection with Jesus more than any other human on earth. And that special connection with Jesus also gave him credibility. Together, his longevity of service, being the last remaining apostle alive, and his special relationship with Jesus, all these things made John, listen to me, by far the most credible, beloved, and trusted person in the first century church. No one spoke with more authority and credibility than John the Elder. But then also we see there is authority. This is from Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So for every Jew, including the first century Christians that John is writing to, the Old Testament was their Bible. It was their source of truth. The authority from God. From its historical books to its wisdom literature like Song of Solomon and Proverbs to its poetry like Psalms and Song of Solomon and and the prophecies and all that stuff. It's God's word delivered to humanity. And John asserts that this prophecy that he's talking about in this book, it possesses all the same by saying it's from the spirit of God of the spirit of the prophets. It contains all the same spiritual authority as all those Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Elijah and Daniel. As a matter of fact, he's saying this one replaces all those. And just as those prophecies came directly from God, John says, just like he did in chapter one, remember, he said the same thing in chapter one, that this prophecy came directly from Jesus. In fact, John is declaring, when he says it's coming from Jesus, he's declaring the same authority that Peter and all the other apostles declared about their teachings to the first century church. What was that? Look what Peter said. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's pretty important right there. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Some seem to try to reverse that. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the God of the Spirit of the prophets. We also see that there is action and accountability. Look, here's an example of an Old Testament action and accountability. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Okay, those are pretty high stakes, (laughs) you know? Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days. Accountability always played a very critical role in every prophecy. Each one <clears throat> called upon God's people to take a specific action. Prophetic ministry did not allow for you to take a neutral position to whatever it declared. Prophecy placed everyone either on the side of rebellion or the side of obedience. Everybody. There's no way to 
Squirm your way out of it if you're a child of God. Obedience to a prophecy's call to action resulted in promise. Rebellion resulted in accountability and judgment. So that's the history. That's how John's readers are reading this part of the passage. Okay, this is a prophecy in the spirit of Elijah. Look at the theology, and this is a shorter section today. I want to talk about this gospel prophecy. So John's revelation of Jesus stood as God's final word of truth to his people. He does not need to reveal anymore. It is the ultimate revelation of his plan of redemption, of how people will come to him and how people will not. And as the last prophecy, and I taught you this earlier this morning, its authority supersedes all previous prophecies in scope and in impact and in significance. I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the Old Testament prophecies are no longer relevant. What I'm saying is this latest, last prophecy of Jesus Christ, the gospel, fulfills and completes all of those. And while this final prophecy's promises, as we've read throughout our study, are beautiful and merciful, its judgments are the most dire and severe of any prophecy before it. The prophecy's promises and judgments aren't just for Jews, though. Now they apply to every tongue and every tribe and every nation throughout history. This is like the Big Mac of prophecies. (laughs) The promises are beautiful and they're precious, but its judgments are equally terrifying with eternal consequences that no one can escape. But unlike all the other previous prophecies, and I'll just be honest, if you go back and read them, they give commands, but it seems like, humanly speaking, none of those commands are possible to keep. (laughs) Like, have you ever gone back and read Old Testament prophecies and thought, oh, that's easy. I could do that. Every time I read them, I think, I'm glad I wasn't alive then. (laughs) This one's commands are simple. Believe in Jesus' work for salvation, and then proclaim this prophecy to the rest of the world. And it's a beautiful display of God's grace. And in return, all those who believe will receive promises far greater than any of those offered by those Old Testament previous prophecies. And those who will believe will be transformed, the scripture says in our passage today, they will be transformed into perfect, redeemed, righteous, and faithful people of God for all eternity. And look what he says in verse 10. I'm just going to read it again. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Okay, since this is the final prophecy, this gospel of Jesus, since it's the final prophecy, the angel says to John, listen, do not seal up any of this prophecy. You have to proclaim all of it to everyone. The entire world. And the angel also warns, he says, listen, don't seal it up and proclaim it, but I want to make sure you understand this gospel prophecy isn't going to be a unifying message. In fact, it is a prophecy that will cause great division. 
It will divide everyone in the world into two groups. By the way, this is not me speaking. This is what John says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6 through 11. There will be two groups that this prophecy divides everyone into. The wicked and the righteous. The saved and the condemned. The unbelievers and the believers. And this divisive nature of the gospel prophecy was in fact predicted by Daniel when he prophesied that it was coming, but God said, seal it up. It's not time for this prophecy yet. Do you remember that? We've talked about that in this series. Look what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12. And many shall purify them. He was talking about the gospel prophecy. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. Does that sound familiar? And none of the wicked shall understand. Hmm. But those who are wise, they shall understand. You see where John got it from? In fact, Jesus himself said the gospel prophecy would be very divisive and a message that actually brings great conflict. Look at what he said in Luke. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. This is our Jesus talking. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two or two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. And he lists about four or five other examples of division and strife and conflict that would be caused by the gospel prophecy. See, the gospel leaves no room for gray areas. No room for ambiguity. No room for compromise. There's no middle ground according to the last prophecy that God has given us. Those who do not follow the Lamb will continue in their wickedness and face eternal judgment reserved for them. On the other hand, those who believe in the work of Christ on the cross and the gift of salvation through his death and resurrection, those who believe and proclaim, they will be redeemed, made righteous, and live with God forever. And this final prophecy forces everyone, all of you, all of us, everyone in the world, to determine how you see Jesus. Is he your king or isn't he? Period. That's it. All right, personal section. We are, in fact, gospel prophets. I don't know if you ever thought yourself as a prophet, but if you're a follower of Jesus, and you've ever told anyone about him, that's what you are. This was the sermon for you this week. The gospel is God's most important, urgent prophecy. It supersedes any before it. He has entrusted its proclamation throughout the world to us, his cherished redeemed. <clears throat> okay, let's do an experiment. You ready? All right, don't, don't pick up your phones or don't open your Bible. If you have your Bible, close it. If you've got a Bible app open, shut off your screen. We're going to quote a verse together, all right? Can we quote John 3.16? Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Great job! Now, let's go ahead and start quoting verses 17 through 21 right after it. Ready? Go. Nobody want to? Don't read it. Can anybody quote it? 17 through 21? All right, fine, I'll just read it for you. How's that? Okay. You ready? This is right after John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the world. Everyone knows that one, even atheists. 
For God did not send his son into the world, condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. This is verse 18. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Did you know that verses 17 to 21 are pretty harsh? John 3.16 is great. <clears throat> Why is it that almost everyone, even unbelievers, can quote John 3.16, but very few can even, not quote, even summarize the next five verses? Oh yeah, God's love the world. And then there's judgment. Is it because verse 16 emphasizes the mercy and grace that we all love, but 17 through 21 are too judgmental, too inconvenient, or too incompatible for our worldview? Like I said, even unbelievers look at John 3.16 and say, oh, that's a nice sentiment. I mean, I don't believe it, but it's a nice message that somebody would come try to save the world. I'm down with that. Church, our obedience to this prophecy means that we proclaim not just John 3.16, but verses 17 through 21 as well. Otherwise, what are we doing? We are sealing it up. You know, you know at the football games, you know people hold up those John 3.16 signs? You know, maybe they should be a little bigger. And like John 3.16 and then just flip it open and it's all, all like all six verses. In very clear, legible font. So that everyone watching the extra point on TV can read, oh wow, grace, oh judgment, oh. And maybe that's what we should do. What do you think? Just a big poster board. <clears throat> Listen, <clears throat> the gospel has the authority to save all who believe. You can trust that but it also has the authority to condemn and judge those who do not. There is no third option. There is no middle ground. You either believe or you remain unrighteous and evil, and that's it. And yes, it's true, in John 3.17, Jesus did come to redeem rather than condemn. He says that. But for those who don't believe, there are consequences. And that's what the New Testament is all about, church. It's about this last prophecy from God and the proclamation of both the gospel's promises and its judgment. It's about Jesus equipping his disciples and in turn us and commanding us to proclaim and comfort the world with verse 16 for the believers, but also the judgment of verses 17 for 21 for those who don't. Now listen. I, you know, I'm going, to read, I'm going to go a little bit out of order. I'm just going to read this passage to you in Galatians. Look what Paul writes to the church in, in Galatia. I'm astonished you quickly deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different, a different gospel. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know what Paul is saying? There's one last prophecy. That's it. And if I say something different or another angel comes to you and says, no, no, there's more. Reject it. There is one gospel. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says it twice, just in case you didn't see it in the first one. But here's the problem that we have, right? There's this, there's this tension as followers of Jesus who want to proclaim the gospel, but we also want to love those who, who don't believe, and we want to be gracious, right? We, we don't want to be arrogant. We want to be hateful. We don't want to be angry. And it's tempting, right? As we work in the world and we, and we follow Jesus and follow the Lamb wherever he goes, it's very tempting to seal up the judgment. To not talk about the divisive parts of the gospel prophecy. We want to try to figure out a way, yeah, but let's just make it more palatable. Here's the problem. The dilemma that we have as followers of Jesus. Altering the gospel prophecy in any way takes away its urgency. It takes away its authority. It takes away its credibility And it takes away its call to action and accountability. That kind of gospel is a false prophecy. It doesn't come from the God of the Spirit or the prophets. It comes from the evil one. That kind of gospel has only one outcome. Judgment for those who are led astray by it. It has no authority, no power to save, no power to transform, and sadly... I was talking to a couple of pastors this week. We got together for some lunch and we were talking about some churches, sadly, in our town who have decided to preach a different gospel. And there are many churches that are proclaiming this sort of gospel that Paul warns against in Galatians. I think it's because they're ashamed of the fact that this is the last prophecy and it has both promises and judgment. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? You know, when you seal up the judgment side, you know what you really are? I'm ashamed of that message. It's a little harsh. I mean, I understand why, but we're not supposed to seal it up. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, not the marketing of it. The gospel itself, the gospel prophecy. The gospel prophecy is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. For the wrath of God, mm, there it goes with the wrath again, come on. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Mm. How do you feel? about the gospel prophecy that both saves, thank God, (laughs) and judges? Are you ashamed of any part of it? I mean, from a human perspective, it's understandable why we are torn, right? It's understandable why we can be hesitant to fully proclaim both sides of this gospel. But you know what? That's why God gave John the previous 21 chapters in Revelation to reveal the big picture battle between good and evil. 
You know, remember, John says this in chapter 1. He says, what happens if you read this? What happens to those who read this prophecy? They are blessed. Reading the prophecy of the book of Revelation blesses us. It strengthens our faith. It renews our confidence in its divine authority. It heightens our desire for its promises. I know that preaching through Revelation has helped me want to see the return of Jesus more than any other time in my life. It also empowers us to remain faithful in our proclamation and our integrity and our industry until Jesus returns. It teaches us that the evil in this world, as powerful as it is, it will not win. And we, with confidence, can follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But it also does detail the consequences awaiting those who refuse to believe. But thankfully, thankfully it's also outlining the glorious victory that awaits those who do. The words in Revelation remind us that our great day of redemption is coming soon. He says that in verse 6, I am coming soon. They are the inspiration, these 21 chapters before, they are the inspiration that we need, the encouragement, the motivation to faithfully proclaim all of the gospel prophecy until then, no matter what evil may bring. Church, this is the last prophecy. God is done revealing truth. It is the final word of God. And here's what's amazing. You, we have been made its prophets. It's truly amazing. And as followers of the Lamb, we possess the same spiritual authority as Isaiah and Ezekiel and Elijah and all those other famous Old Testament prophets. That is why we... As followers of Jesus, listen carefully, we are called to live in a way that is different from the rest of the world. See, in studying Revelation, you can see how it serves, right, as inspiration to walk faithfully and proclaim the complete final prophecy of the gospel of Jesus. And since our Jesus promised to return, I think what we should be doing personally, we should eat sleep, and breathe this final prophecy. We should proclaim it to the world outside. And you know where else we should proclaim it? We should proclaim it to ourselves and to each other. Every opportunity we have, reminding one another just how important this final word from God is. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we did last week with our baptisms. And as special of a moment as that was, you think that was good? It's nothing compared to what the gospel prophecy promises those who follow the Lamb, what we will experience on the day that he comes back. You think you cried last week? Tears of joy? Just wait. And as he promised, he is coming soon. Moments like last week, moments like we, time that we spend together like today, they remind us when we see the power 
of that final prophecy, they remind us, church, there is zero reason to be ashamed of this beautiful gospel prophecy. Let those who have ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Dear Jesus, please give us wisdom to know how to share this gospel with love and humility. Lord, protect us from sharing it in ways that seem angry or vindictive. Lord, help us to be innocent as doves, but also shrewd as snakes, as you told us in the scriptures. Lord, give us the courage necessary to keep us from being those who want to seal up part of it or any of it. Lord, protect us. Lord, inspire us through your word and through our time together and through the evidence of the power of the gospel. Inspire us to proclaim it. And Lord, every day when we get up and it's a brand new day, remind us you have given us the final prophecy and made us its prophets. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into light. And even when we would not choose you, for some reason you chose us. Thank you for this gospel prophecy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you guys one more week next week in Revelation. See you next week.